Jack's place was the last place that still gave Lemley the feeling of a small town. The clientele hadn't changed much since I started coming around. It was like our very own small town version of the bar from Cheers, a place where everyone knows your name, and to a much more unfavorable degree, your business. I was the last person in the world that anyone would expect to frequent a place like Jack's, where most college students would study in quiet places like a dorm or library. I found no place better than the tattered couch in the corner of the bar, right next to the billiards table. I'd moved to Lemley my first year of college for a change of scenery. It is typical of a small town student to head off to a big city to experience a taste of life that they hadn't yet, and such was the same for the students in the reverse role. I was one of the latter. My parents raised me in a middle class apartment in Toronto, and I purposely selected a college out in the boonies, as my parents would say, to gain a bit of independence, as well as to expose myself to a different type of living. I knew the world had to be made up of more types of people than the ones I saw in the city every day. Glancing up from my textbook to the front of the bar, I noticed a scrap just waiting to happen. Frankie Menser, a gruff blob of a man, had already won too many to drink. He got kicked out of Jack's at least once a month, but always promised that his behavior would change. Always seeing the best in people, Jack would let him back in. The worst thing I ever saw Frankie do was start a fistfight with a patron over a misunderstanding. The fight was taken outside where Frankie subsequently kicked the guy's ass. From where I was sitting, it looked like history was about to repeat itself. 
Jack, a kind-hearted man in his late 50s and the namesake of the bar, saw the tensions rising. He took it upon himself to break up the fight before it had even started. Just cool it, Frankie, I heard Jack shout over the rock music blaring from the speaker near my head. He handed Frankie a cigarette and sent the man outside. Frankie took a moment before leaving to put his jean jacket on. Lemley would never be defined as a warm place, and given that we were deep into October already, things were only getting colder. As Frankie opened the door to leave, a gust of wind blew inside, forcing the door open longer than intended. Before apologizing to Gus, the man whom Frankie was getting into it with, Jack ran over and slammed the door shut. Things returned to normal in the bar, and my attention was drawn back to my drink and textbook. It was only 10.30, and I was already exhausted. My eyes felt heavy, and it was becoming a struggle to retain the information as I was reading it. The better half of my brain told me that it was time to head home for the night, but my stomach convinced me to stay until I had finished the pitcher of beer. I had paid for the full container and only had about a glass or two left. It felt like an absolute waste to not finish it. Ten minutes had passed before the door flew open again. This time it wasn't from the wind at all, but from Frankie. I casually glanced towards the door expecting to see Frankie in his usual drunken stupor. Instead, I saw the face of a man who was afraid. Very afraid. A man who had seemingly seen death and heard the voice of God all at once. He looked more sober than I had ever seen him before. There's a monster out there, Frankie said. He spoke with such sincerity, without the slightest hint of humor. The bar patrons waited for him to crack up, but it never came. There was a pregnant pause between his bizarre statement and the thunderous laughter that soon followed from everyone around. Frankie's face soured, but marched inside and threw the door shut. He began locking the door, which forced the laughter to settle. Jack frantically moved towards Frankie. What the hell are you doing? The owner cried. Step away from those locks right now. Grab your shotgun, Frankie hollered. It's gonna be a long night. Jack grabbed Frankie by the collar and tossed him away from the door. He stumbled into a group of annoyed people who had just pushed him back. Frankie fell over his own feet, landing in front of Jack as he went to unlock the bolt from the door. We all heard something from the other side. It was the cry of a wolf. Now, it wasn't too uncommon for a bear or wolf to wander in onto the lot. After all, Jack's bar did back onto a rather large wooded area, so spotting the occasional woodland creature wouldn't be completely out of the ordinary. But there was something about this one that immediately stood out as different. This wasn't a typical howl at the moon. It sounded like a war cry. Without warning, a hand came bursting through the wooden door. Everyone inside the bar jumped to their feet, and everyone's camera phones immediately came out to capture the moment. I was far too stunned to take any action other than to gaze in utter disbelief. As I tried to process what was happening, I quickly realized that the hand that burst through the door only slightly resembled a human's hand. It was far hairier than any I had seen before. Just like a human, it had four fingers and an imposable thumb but the fingers and nails exceeded a foot in length from my estimation. This hand was second to none the largest I'd ever seen in my short 22 years of life. The hand pulled away and we were all left gobsmacked with the mental image of a beast clawing at the very door that separated us from it. We breathed a collective sigh of undeserved relief. Within a moment, another appendage appeared, a large black snout pressed into the hole that the hand had created. I watched as the breath from its nose came out like a puff of smoke as the creature snarled at the door. 
Louder than the rock music, louder than Jack's hollering, the beast clawed at the door while it had attempted to chew through the hole that it was growing quickly. Jack ran behind the bar and grabbed for his shotgun. It probably wasn't something that he was legally allowed to keep in his establishment, but not a single person in that moment seemed to care. I was never more thankful to see a gun in my life, despite being morally opposed to them. This seemed like the only time where a gun was the most definite answer to the situation at hand. The bartender seemed less confident than I feel he should have been in that moment. Granted, we were all scared of the uncertainty of what would happen. All of our minds were operating under the predisposed notion that Jack would undoubtedly land a perfect shot and take out the creature before it harmed any one of us. Drinks would be on the house, and we would all go about our business as usual. Of course, that would not be the case. The clawing had stopped, and the snout was no longer coming through the door. We all waited with bated breath, knowing that something was going to happen sooner than later. A young woman that I didn't recognize, who had been standing by the window, took out her phone while looking at Jack. I think we should call the po- She was cut off. The glass window was shattered with such power and aggression that I thought that a car had come crashing through the side of the wall. There was an explosion of panic and everyone in the bar came running in my direction. Jack adjusted his aim from the door where the woman was standing and made a swift decision to pull the trigger. His aim was not exactly as accurate as I hoped it would be. I watched the woman collapse instantly while the beast remained untouched. I couldn't believe my eyes. Standing at the front of the bar that I frequented so often was an eight-foot-tall, bipedal wolf with more human-like features than I had initially realized. We made eye contact for the briefest of moments. Its eyes glowed a uniquely vibrant hue of yellow. It looked at the crowd of people rushing towards me, and then looked over to Jack. The bartender was in shock. I'm still not sure if the face he was making was because he had just taken someone's life, or because he would undoubtedly be the next to go. The beast arched its back, which I quickly understood was an indicator that it was about to pounce, and it jumped with such a precise and incredible stride. It flew towards Jack, pushing him up against the wall. It clawed at his shirt, ripped at his arms, and gnawed at his neck. Blood was shooting out from every angle, and Jack's screams fell silent as he gargled on his own blood. When Jack fell, the wolf turned with a grin, revealing a row of jagged, blood-stained teeth. The attacks had seemed so calculated that they were almost innately human. I wasn't in a frame of mind yet where I was willing to accept the possibility that I may have encountered a werewolf, but nowadays is a bit of a different story. Although I wasn't thinking it at the time, I can now see the humor in the most morbid sense that Jack's lifeless corpse had fallen near a neon sign that I had read many times. The sign read, If you can't call in drunk to work, call in dead. There were about 20 or 30 of us all huddled in the back room area of the bar near the pool table and sound system. A small group of burly men hoisted tables and chairs over their heads, presumably as makeshift weapons. In the moment, the sight wasn't as bizarre as I'm sure it sounds now, but I would love to meet the person who knows exactly what to do if they were to encounter a werewolf. As far as I knew, I was as good as dead. Given the ease of Jack's murder, I knew that my only chance at survival would be to get as far away as possible as fast as I could. My only plan was to stay alive long enough for the burly men to become the primary target of the beast's attention, and then I could make it out to my car. I gave myself a window of 45 seconds before it would realize that I had disappeared. It was a minuscule amount of time, near impossible to attempt what I was planning. 
I needed to somehow run by the chaos, get into my car, start the car, and then drive off unscathed. If werewolves were anything like dogs, it would undoubtedly have an acute sense of hearing and potentially smell. I knew that if I were to be successful, home was the last place I could go. The police would be called immediately, and I would drive until I ran out of gas, or the full moon had been traded for the morning sun. My meticulous, albeit flawed, planning had come to a halt as the burly men all began shouting in unison. All of it was unintelligible. I peeked my head above their shoulders so that I could see what was happening. If my life was in imminent danger, I at least wanted to see it coming. What I saw instead wasn't as alarming as their hooting and hollering would suggest. The wolf was now on all fours, prowling about the bar. It never looked away from the group of men, even as they shouted, shaking their individual pieces of furniture at the wolf. It was as if they were priests holding a crucifix to a demon, attempting to ward it off. No such reaction occurred. Instead, it looked like the beast was working up its appetite. It was killing for sport for the moment, but it would have to make a choice of who to attack first. It was trying to decide which of the burly men would put up the best fight. My anxieties got the best of me and I became sick to my stomach, backing down from my vantage point. I quietly gathered my textbooks and placed them in my satchel, occasionally glancing over to make sure there hadn't been no drastic changes in the creature's behavior. Once all of my personal belongings had been accounted for, I draped the strap of my satchel over my shoulder. It gave me an odd sense of confidence, almost nullifying my anxiety, as if I had become a quasi-Indiana Jones-type adventurer who laughed in the face of danger. This was, of course, not me by any stretch of the imagination. The wolf arched its back again, and I was the only one who paid attention enough to know what that meant. Perhaps I should have let out an audible warning of the impending attack. Perhaps then more people would have survived that night. Perhaps in a different life, I did. But it does not serve any purpose to dwell on the could-have, would-have, or should-have of a situation. I can only relay the events as they happened. Unfortunately, I didn't warn a soul. The beast leapt towards the group with no evident target in mind. A chaotic energy erupted as the wolf bit down onto the nearest patron. The gang that surrounded the animal started beating it with their makeshift weapons. Each blow had little to no effect. The wolf somehow sustained every injury it received without a care in the world. It was far too preoccupied with making sure it had killed its prey before directing its attention to anyone else. This seemed to be the moment that I was looking for. I ducked my head and ran around the group, attempting to move with a swift and silent stride. I would love to tell you that I escaped unnoticed, but then I would be a liar. I failed my plan on every level. It was such a simple goal I had, make it to the door without it seeing. Instead, as I brushed along the wall nearest my table, I tripped over the cord that was powering the speakers, yanking it right out of the wall. The abrupt end to the music only served to exacerbate an increasing sense of panic in all of us. I had almost immediately realized that the music was a good way to buffer the horrors that we were experiencing, it also served to render our screams near silent. Now there was no buffer, and we could hear every noise of every victim being torn apart. The hairs on my neck stiffened as I concluded that the terrible scratchy noise I was hearing was the sound of the wolf's knife-like teeth scraping across human bones. I knew that if my next action wasn't an intelligent one, my life was going to be in jeopardy next. When I tripped, I'd fallen completely onto the floor. I soon understood that my only chance at successfully making it out unnoticed was to crawl to the door as fast as possible. 
I secretly hoped that the group would keep the beast at bay long enough for me to get out alive. I know how terrible it must seem for me to wish death upon others, for my own selfish desire to stay alive, but I can only repeat so many times that I wasn't in my right headspace. Had I been rational, things would most likely be different. My ability to rationalize had gone right out the window as soon as a werewolf crashed through the one at Jack's place. As I made the quick decision to crawl away, I noticed that Gus was in the process of raising a bar stool, presumably to smash it down atop the wolf's head, if only he had been successful. He raised the stool with no awareness of his surroundings and smashed the lamp hanging from the ceiling. Thankfully, the light didn't shatter and we weren't forced into total darkness, but the lamp did spin out of control. The lamp swung back and forth like a pendulum, showcasing everyone's uniquely shocked faces. The most harrowing sight, however, was just after it swung towards where I was, and the beast's eyes followed it until it pointed at me like a searchlight. When the lamp went off in the other direction, it plunged the chaotic scene into darkness for a moment. Then it flew back, backlighting the werewolf, and highlighting how truly powerful it looked, standing over me. It was such an imposing and threatening figure, and I must admit that I was truly terrified. The creature made its way towards me, and I ushered away from it while never breaking eye contact. Without warning, it reached towards me with one of its terrible clawed hands and began slashing at my leg. I hollered in pain, just before the damn thing went in for a bite. It nipped at me, deep enough to break the skin, but not deep enough to cause any sort of serious pain. Thankfully, Gus and the rest of the guys had sworn the wolf and began beating it once again. The beast turned to face them and took them on one at a time. It made moves that I had only seen professional wrestlers make, which both astonished and horrified me. It tossed burly men aside as if they were weightless. I bore witness to the most impressive presentation of raw power that I had ever seen. It ripped throats out with ease and took heads off with an unmatched swiftness. At long last, I was out. I reached for my keys, shaking like a leaf as I retrieved them from my jean pocket. Within a few moments, I was in my car, backing out of the parking lot with absurd speed. Just as I was adjusting gears, I happened to glance towards the bar, and noticed the wolf running to the main door in a fit of rage. I stared in horror, realizing that it had heard my engine starting. There was a hesitation, and I thought that this had all been for nothing. Once the car was put into drive and I was facing the open road, I slammed my foot down on the gas pedal and drove for an hour straight in one direction. I'd somehow gotten six towns over without realizing it. I was unsure of where I was, unsure if what I had just survived was the truth or an elaborate hallucination. When I got out of my car at a police station to file a report, I felt the jabbing pain in my leg from where the bite occurred. It's the weirdest sensation when adrenaline takes over, and pain becomes irrelevant. For the duration of the drive, I had forgotten that I was even wounded. Now, a month later, I am mentally and physically scarred from that terrible night at Jack's place. Over the past few days, I have endured more pain than I thought possible. The wounds on my legs have started acting up again, and I have begun lashing out irrationally for seemingly no reason. Perhaps something happened to me that night that I have not yet discovered. I suppose it isn't too illogical to presume that the beast may have transferred some of its DNA through the slashing. Perhaps my regaling of the events that occurred have led to my recent tendencies of paranoia. I could be reading too much into it, but I have the strangest feelings and urges recently. 
I must confess that my biggest concern right now is that I may be turning into a... Our next tale of terror is the ghost of Central Street by J.T. McClellan. Hannah Gordon was a young mother and had grown accustomed to the judgmental glare of the residents of Lemley. She gave them no credence, believing that they deserved none. Her age was hardly enough of a reason for anyone to consider her son to be a mistake. The word was thrown around so often by whispering tongues in town that it made Hannah sick to her stomach. A mistake was an accident, something that one didn't plan for. Her son was planned. The accident was the death of her boyfriend, her son's father, when the baby was only a few months old. A car crash on a rainy April night left Hannah to be a single parent. It was difficult to raise a child alone, but it was even more challenging when she became the target of sideways glances and raucous rumors. Hannah was renting the main floor of an old house on Division Street. The aptly named section of town was very much the divider between the old world and the new. One side belonged to heritage homes and legacy land, while the other had developed recently, sometime in the early aughts. It was a bizarre juxtaposition of the two styles of homes, separated by a distance of 30 feet or 200 years. The homes on the old side of the street resembled something more akin to castles or baronies, homes made with real artisan craftsmanship. The modern equivalents looked run-of-the-mill and plain. The house that Hannah lived in had been transformed into several apartments over the last few years. It was an old estate and was able to accommodate as many as eight tenants. The singular bedrooms rented for a fair price, but Hannah didn't find them to be spacious enough for her and her son. While the main floor was pricier, she didn't mind, because she could actually spread her things out. Her initial concern upon moving in was that the old house would carry the inevitable wails of a newborn, but quite the opposite proved to be true. Shortly after she got settled, Hannah approached one of the upstairs tenants as he arrived home from work one evening. The two had a neighborly discussion about the landlord, history of the house, and then Hannah finally brought up her concerns regarding the noise. Beyond a heavy bookshelf being moved, Hannah had never once heard a noise come through from anyone living upstairs. After a while, the man whom she learned was named David informed her that neither him nor any of the other residents of Attenborough House had ever felt it necessary to complain about the noise level. According to him, Hannah and her son were a dream to deal with. When you were moving in and I saw all the baby stuff, I must admit that I was apprehensive, David told her. But it's been almost a month and I've never been bothered once. I only asked because of the last place I lived at, Hannah said shyly. It was in an apartment building on the other side of town, and I guess I never felt comfortable in my own home. Every noise traveled, every cough or sneeze, you name it, we heard it. That sounds terrible. Every time my son cried, whether he was hungry or fussy, the banging started. First on the walls, and then the door. And if it's not hard enough for a young woman to acclimate to motherhood as it is, I had to deal with everyone around me making me feel like it was a problem that my baby cried. You're definitely not going to get that problem here, David said. They sure don't build places like they used to. They certainly don't, Hannah said with a smile. She showed no physical attraction to David, but an emotional connection was made that day. They wouldn't be considered good friends by any means, but strong acquaintances seemed like a fitting label. 
During the months that followed, they would always wave to each other as they passed by and struck up the occasional conversation, time permitting. One afternoon, Hannah decided that she was going to take her son for a walk. It was late October, and the red and orange leaves were abundant on their side of town. Dozens of large trees adorned nearly every property, not only on Division Street, but the nearby Center Street as well. The pavement of the sidewalk was no longer visible due to the excess of fallen leaves. Hannah grabbed her son's stroller and began the walk with no particular destination in mind. She enjoyed the crisp air and relished in the cooling temperature. She had never been one to bask in the sweltering heat of summer, nor the blistering cold of winter. Fall and spring both were her favorite time of year, two seasons that teetered between the warm and the cold. The limbs of the ancient trees hung over Division Street like a thick canopy, blocking out most of the sunlight. The mood always felt dreary and sullen, regardless of the actual weather. If she had walked a few miles away from the old part of town, she would have been greeted by the warmth of the autumn air. Instead, she traveled deeper into the gloom. Hannah marched down Division Street, pushing the stroller along. The wheels made an aggressive screeching noise as they trudged through the piles of unraked leaves. Eventually, Hannah turned towards Center Street, a road that she seldom took. She had lived in Lemley for most of her life, and had been on Division Street long enough to have sauntered in that direction once or twice. She never had before, and for good reason. As she walked, a cool gust of wind swept up some of the fallen leaves. It echoed a breathy howl for a moment or two. For some inexplicable reason, chills ran down her spine. She had no reason to be concerned, and yet she was. While she had grown accustomed to people's gawking stares, she felt the uncomfortable leering eye of a man glaring at her from a distance. She watched her son's head turn towards the house that they were passing. Mommy, look! Man, the baby announced excitedly, albeit in broken English. Hannah turned now in the same direction her son had. She was amused with her ability to sense when people were looking at her. Not wanting to make eye contact with the gawker, Hannah feigned an itch on her neck and stopped to scratch it. She turned sharply to face the house, expecting to see someone standing on the lawn. Instead of a person, her eyes were drawn to two large windows at the front of the house, peering down at her. The house was old and large, and oozed an ominous, almost foreboding presence. Her eyes held the image of the house for as long as she could without looking away. She was drawn to it, for whatever reason. Her son became fussy and began thrashing about in the stroller. He tried as hard as he could to lift himself out of the restraints. The child emitted a scream so loud and high-pitched that it rang through Hannah's ears long after his mouth had closed. Can you calm down? She said to the baby, still not taking her eyes off of the house. No, the baby cried. I go. Mommy, go. And then she saw him. Standing within the frame of a much smaller window to the side of the house stood a tall and rugged man. The man scoured, his presence looming over the grounds like a fog. He watched the young mother with an unrelenting stare. This was unusual, even for the people of Lemley. While Hannah was aware of most that glared at her, she had never connected with someone for longer than a few awkward seconds. Once she noticed a stare, the person usually turned away instantly, pretending as if it wasn't happening. This was entirely different. She stared at the man in the window, and he stared right back, growing more intense with every passing moment. 
His look had turned from curious to intimidating in a span of ten seconds. The more frightening he appeared, the more Hannah's son cried. Mommy! he wailed. Go! Go, man! Go, man! Hannah, annoyed with her son's tantrum, dropped to his level, preparing to scold him for his behavior. She happened to cast a glance towards the small window and noticed that the man was no longer standing there. Her eyes scanned the two larger windows but failed to see any movement, or anything else to indicate where the man was. The wind blew once more, this time more intense than the first. Hannah's son had stopped crying and was now hiccuping after having worked himself up to such a degree. Hannah continued on the walk, wrapping around the main street, and stopped at Wilson's department store to browse their selection of Halloween items. Later that evening, after tucking her son into bed, Hannah sat alone on the couch, sifting through a novel that she had been putting off for months. Motherhood, particularly single motherhood, wasn't very forgiving. Her parental duties offered no time for leisurely activities, much to her dismay. She had been a voracious reader since childhood, but after becoming a mother, could never seem to fit it into her busy schedule. Her day hadn't been particularly exhausting, but she felt her eyes growing heavier with every passing second. She closed her eyes for what she felt was only a moment, but couldn't be sure how long it truly was. A knocking at her front door forced her awake. She bolted up from a prone position, steadying herself as she waited for another knock. Before long, the noise continued. The raps on the door were slow and heavy. For as long as Hannah had lived in Attenborough House, she had never had company over, save for a brief visit from her parents when she first moved in. Hannah carefully approached the door, unsure who to expect. She wasn't even sure what time it was, or how long she had rested her eyes. The knocking in the middle of the night was a painful reminder of the worst moment in her life. She shook the memory from her mind and opened the door with suspicion. There was nobody there. Confused and alarmed, Hannah peeked her head out onto the lawn to give a quick look around. She saw David on his way to the back entrance, which was how he and the other upstairs tenants got to their units. David turned as he heard the creaker for door open. Oh, you are home, David said, sporting a smile. He held up a case of beer. You want one? After inviting him inside, Hannah graciously accepted a bottle. She had never been much of a drinker, even in her high school days. One of the activities that she never had time for was socializing. The life of a single mother was a rather lonely one, and David's impromptu visit came exactly when she needed it. I'll be back in one second, Hannah said as she handed David the bottle opener. I'm just going to go check on my son. She disappeared out of the main living area and kitchen space into a small hallway. David used this time to take a brief look around her apartment. He noticed a family photograph of Hannah, the baby, and what appeared to be her boyfriend. The two acquaintances began their evening by discussing the broadest possible subjects. After three or four beers each, David felt comfortable enough to ask the first deep question. It's a nice family photo you have, David said. Your son is adorable. He was doing his best not to pry, but Hannah caught on to what he was really asking almost right away. Thank you, she said. Things have been really difficult for the two of us since my boyfriend passed away. David gulped awkwardly. I, I'm, I'm so, so sorry. I, I didn't know. Don't apologize, Hannah said. Most of the people in town know me, not by my name, but by the rumor that he ran off on me and the baby. So what happened? Hannah took a long swig of beer. 
She went on to explain that she and her boyfriend had made the decision to live together after learning that she was pregnant. They were only 17 then, and agreed that they were going to drop out of high school. He would start working and save up as much money as he possibly could before the baby arrived. After a year, they were finally able to get a place of their own. It was expensive, but they could afford it if he worked a double shift each day. The deal was that he would work two jobs for the first year of the baby's life, and then she would be expected to start contributing so that he wasn't as overworked. One day, he decided that he was going to visit his parents for the afternoon, and took his son along with him. While he was out, Hannah received a phone call for a job interview at a local store. She didn't tell him anything, she wanted to keep it a surprise. He had no idea that she was even looking for a job. It was earlier than either of them had anticipated for her to get work, but she wanted to help him out if she could. He took the responsibility of parenthood very seriously, and she was immensely proud of him and wanted to show her gratitude by helping him out. She was hired on the spot for a job that paid minimum wage and only offered part-time hours. It wasn't much, but it was a start. After the interview was over, she purchased a nice dinner and cleaned the whole apartment for the occasion. She was so excited to tell him the good news. She waited and waited, but he never came home. In the middle of the night, there was a knock at the door, and two police officers stood solemnly in the hallway, hat in hand. They announced that her boyfriend had been struck by a car and was killed upon impact. Where did this happen? David asked, his mouth agape in shock. Nodding towards the window, Hannah said, right up on Center Street. Driver said he wasn't paying any attention. Distracted driving, I guess. That's terrible. No, it's not. Do you want another terrible part? Hannah asked. Without waiting for a response, she added, He was bringing home flowers for me. I never got to tell him about the job. And I've been doing this parenting thing all by myself. That has to be hard on you, David said. It was, but I'm taking it one day at a time. The conversation died down shortly after that. An awkwardness loomed over the two, and David took the moment of silence as the most opportune time to leave. They said their goodbyes, and David went up to his apartment for the evening. Hannah did one final check on her son before going to bed. He was still sleeping soundly, which surprised her. After the excitement of the day, she figured that he would be harder to put to sleep. He truly was like a dream. Hannah shut off the lights in the living room, then went to her own bed and prayed for a good night's sleep. No matter how hard she tried, she couldn't escape the vision of the man on Center Street. David was startled awake by aggressive knocking on his door, paired with the hushed whimpers of a young woman. He recognized them to be made by Hannah right away and rushed out of bed to see what was the matter. She stood in his doorway looking pale as if she had seen a ghost. She was trembling, physically shaking. She was murmuring something almost inaudible and it took David a moment to register what she was saying. There's a man in my son's bedroom. David looked just as startled as Hannah did. He reached for the closest weapon he could find, which happened to be a baseball bat. It was suitable enough to wound an intruder. He rushed down the staircase, across the field, and arrived at the main entrance of Attenborough House. Call the police, David whispered to Hannah. I already did. They're on their way, she responded. David cautiously entered the home, raised the bat, and walked over to the dark hallway that he had seen Hannah go down. There was only one door, and it had to be the son's bedroom. 
He pressed his ear up against it, but heard nothing. He was certain that the intruder became aware that they knew he was in there, and panicked. The door flung open and David jumped inside. He flicked the light on as fast as possible and was shocked and horrified at what he saw. The room was empty. His initial thought was that the man had taken the baby, but quickly noticed the lack of footprints anywhere around the room. It remained untouched. The blankets in the crib were made perfectly and had no suggestion that a baby had slept in it at all. As he tried to piece it all together, Hannah stood out in the hallway, screaming at the top of her lungs. David had never been more confused. What are you waiting for? Hannah hollered. Hit the bastard! David looked all around the empty room. Regardless of what Hannah believed, there was no man in there. There was no baby. It was just Hannah. In that moment, David realized that he had never once seen her son, despite living in the apartment for almost a year. He had always seen her, but never him. Whether she was delusional or was truly seeing something paranormal, David was never sure. Whatever the answer was, David would never forget the glossed-over look of Hannah's eyes as she wailed that night. She truly thought she saw some entity, real or otherwise, come for her son. David had never seen madness displayed like that before or since. He moved out of Attenborough House shortly thereafter, opting instead to rent an apartment with a friend on the newer side of town. Although he didn't believe much in the afterlife or paranormal, David made a silent vow to himself that he would never again walk on Center Street. Chapter 1, October 25th. Northern Wisconsin was always cold this time of year. The trees had become barren, and the fields were now a desolate wasteland of decay. Crops across the farmland that once grew abundantly had seemingly disappeared overnight. Summer had been all too short for the town of Lemley. The warm weather had died down well before the middle of September. For the past month, it was as though the sun had been distorted to loom gray, like a harsh reminder of the inevitable cold winter ahead. The change in the weather had not stopped a group of neighborhood kids from playing hooky from school. Six of them, with ages ranging from eight to twelve, all trudged along a muddy path that led deep into a dense forest. The woods served as the perfect location for a competitive game of hide-and-seek. The group of children consisted of a fair mixture between boys and girls. A few of them were siblings, but all were friends. Growing up on the same street meant they did almost everything together. They all knew the stories behind every cut, scab, scrape, or bruise that their friends had acquired. 
All six of the children assembled next to a large tree that had been designated as home base. What followed was not unlike a ritualistic chant as the group formed into a small circle. An eight-year-old girl bent down and glided her index finger across each of their shoes, singing, Black shoe, black shoe, all out but you. A collective disappointed holler was let out as Christopher, the reigning champion of hide-and-seek, had been selected as the seeker. He was the oldest and the fastest, which made him the hardest to outwit. The kids knew that they wouldn't stand a chance against him. You better actually count to 60 seconds. 30 doesn't give us enough time to hide, protested Gage, an outspoken and scrappy nine-year-old. Several of the friends nodded their heads in agreement, forcing a smile on Christopher's face. He laughed obnoxiously, then backed away from the group with his hands over his eyes. Then you better start running, Christopher hollered. The countdown began, starting from 30. No fair, Gage retorted. Shut up, we gotta run, another kid yelled as they ran to find a good hiding spot. Christopher spun around as he counted, which had always been the rule amongst their group. It added an extra layer of disorientation when the seeker's eyes eventually opened. With every number that he called out, he spun faster. Ready or not, here I come, Christopher announced. He was already dizzy at 15 seconds and damn near collapsed at 30. There was a certain stillness in the air as Christopher tried to gather his bearings. The whole world was shifting at such a hurried pace that the boy could hardly take a step forward without feeling the urge to vomit. He struggled to maintain even a slow walking pace. He tried to shake off the dizziness. There was no way that he could appear weak in front of the neighborhood kids. Hubris or not, he had attained something of a legendary status. He was the kid to be. For better or worse, his friends did admire him. He sauntered around the woods trying to clear his head. Each distant crack of a tree branch forced his eyes to dart towards the sound, hoping it meant that one of his friends was making a run for home base. A large gust of wind ripped through the naked trees, enhancing a growing sense of dread that Christopher was now feeling. Although he knew he wasn't alone in the woods, it sure felt like he was. There was something inexplicably unsettling about the forest now. He had been out there many times and never had it felt so foreboding. Gage, who had been hiding under a pile of leaves for what felt like hours, carefully stuck his head out and scoped the scene around him. As far as he could tell, Christopher was nowhere to be seen. He took a chance, bolting from his prone position and headed straight for home base. All that he had to do was touch the old tree and he'd be a living legend. He would be the first kid on the block to not get caught by Christopher in a game of hide-and-seek. The closer that Gage got to the tree, the more intensely his heart raced. At any moment, he half expected Christopher to jump out from behind a bush, shout, one, two, three on Gage, and slap him across the backside, eliminating him from the game. He was so close to making it that he tossed any notion of discretion out the window. Home free! Gage ceremoniously hollered, slamming himself into the tree. There was still no sign of Christopher. Gage glanced back, his hand placed firmly on the old tree. A moment or two passed before he saw one of the other kids running towards the base as well. Gage cheered his friend along as she collided almost face first into the thick trunk of the tree. Before long, Gage's older brother Lucas made it home free as well. One person getting home free was a miracle. Three was suspicious. They all wore concerned expressions as they realized that they were all sharing the same fear. Lucas, the second oldest of the bunch, took it upon himself to shout something as loud as he could. Catch someone already, Christopher, he said. Are you going to let us all win? A sudden collective chill ran up their spines as the distant howl of wind was the only response that Lucas got. 
It was as if nature was answering the boy's question. There was a breathy quality to the way the wind blew as it echoed throughout the dead forest. Regardless of whether or not Christopher had heard them, there was enough reason to be concerned. Either he had wandered off too far or had gotten himself hurt. If he was in jeopardy, the kids would have to return to their parents and try to explain to them why they skipped school. If he had simply gone too far, then they would restart the game, this time setting up a proper boundary line. The kids called off the activity and decided to group together. They marched through a thick trail of leaves resting on the dirt floor, crunching with each scurried step. They looked everywhere they reasonably could, calling out Christopher's name every few paces. This was obviously a situation that they could no longer handle. They needed help. Their parents would undoubtedly be mad that they skipped school, but it was agreed upon that they would be even more upset if something had happened to one of their own. Christopher, if you're out there, you need to stop messing around right now, Lucas stated with authority. We're going home to get a parent to look for you. This was the first time that the gang had vocalized involving a parent. Lucas secretly hoped that it would be the straw that broke the camel's back, expecting to see Christopher cracking up as he tried to say, you should have seen your faces. The moment that he desperately desired would never come. The woods were just as silent, save for the wind, as they had been when they first noticed their friend's disappearance. Although there were five kids left, they all shared a feeling of solitude as they made their way back down the trail of leaves leading home. Without warning or explanation, a teal light suddenly shone onto the group for a split second. The flash was so quick that none of them could even process what it was. It appeared peripherally, that much was clear, and the children tilted their heads back in unison to see where the light had come from. But there was nothing there. The five friends looked at each other, opting not to say a word, but silently acknowledging that what they had seen was real. No discussion followed, but a decision was made to stray off the path that they should have taken in favor of investigating the source of light. They came upon an old log that was blocking their path. It was covered in a layer of thick green moss. Its placement was peculiar, as if it had been placed there on purpose. Lucas led his friends as they approached the fallen tree, but the whole group suddenly came to a halt. The eldest boy moved forward, poking his head up over the log, and noticed something strange. His eyes grew wide and his mouth agape as he stared just beyond the log. The four other kids joined him. They all looked on with the same aghast expression. They had been in these woods many times, but never before they seen something like this. Over the log was a massive pit. It appeared to be bottomless. The hole itself was roughly ten feet around and potentially thousands of feet deep. Lucas perched himself on the rotten log and peered down into the hole as best he could. He was disappointed with the result. Did he fall? Gage asked, innocently curious. Of course, Lucas had no answer. He ignored his brother's question. I'm going to climb in and see how far it goes, Lucas declared. Immediately, Gage ran towards him, shaking his head profusely and begging him not to go through with it. No, you can't, Gage wailed. You can't go missing too. Going missing was not Lucas's intention. He wanted to find his friend before they had to get their parents. If Christopher really had fallen down into this hole, the likelihood of him not having a concussion or a broken bone was slim to none. This had grown out of their hands and now truly required the attention of an adult. There was some arguing back and forth among the friends about whether they should stay and inspect the hole or to leave and return with adults. One child suggested that the teal light was even Christopher using his cell phone to get their attention. Lucas shot down that theory immediately, noting the cell phone's light would never reach that distance while still maintaining the intensity. 
The bickering ended abruptly as Gage pointed at something inside the pit. It was moving. Christopher, is that you? He asked quietly. The group directed their attention back to the hole. Lucas dropped onto his knees to take a look inside. The older boy asked, Dude, how'd you fall down in there? There was no response. The teal light shot back out, shining brightly onto the unsuspecting faces peering into the pit. Something came darting through the dirt towards the kids. It made a screeching noise, like the squeal of a pig. A figure, childlike in stature, maneuvered itself in an inhuman way as it crawled up from out of the pit. Gage struggled to hurtle over the log. His brother pushed him from behind, toppling the boy onto the ground. Lucas, who was the last child near the pit, let out a blood-curdling scream. It's not Christopher! It's not him! And how the shit today and the happy Halloween.